I think the best thing that we can do as parents is recall a time when our kids were afraid of something and they met the challenge successfully. Identify the stages that helped them do that or the actions that they took and then make connections between that and whatever anxious situation they're facing in the future because anxiety is very good at erasing memories of success and and courage. And we have to hold that for our kids. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the 2022 ADHD Essentials Winter Parent Groups closes this week. The groups will begin a week from Monday on January 24th, and they run for eight weeks on Mondays and Thursdays, meeting for one hour at 12 p.m. or 5 p.m. Eastern. Each of the eight weeks has its own theme. We're looking at things like parental self-care, parenting as leadership, building connection within the family, improving family communication, ADHD-friendly systems and structures for the home, managing anxiety, my patented wall of awful model, and how to ask better questions so we get better answers. The fee for the groups is $976. It's payable all at once or over four installments of $244. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parent groups for more details and to register for a free information session. Or email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. You will find the link for these groups in the show notes. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, the flagship show of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Mabin. Don't forget to join all of us for a live Q&A Tuesday, February 8th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. If you want to support this show, a great way to do it is by providing a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It helps others find us through that wild algorithm magic. It really helps to raise the visibility of the show. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Sharon Celine. Dr. Celine is a friend of the pod, a licensed clinical psychologist, and the author of What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. In today's episode, Dr. Celine and I talk about the effects of the pandemic on children and families, and we also talk about some ways to mitigate those effects. We discuss the data changes on mental health pre- and post-pandemic, moral injury, the pandemic's effect on social skills, and how to understand and manage the anxiety that has increased so significantly since the pandemic started. 
All right, let's get rolling. I'm Dr. Sharon Celine, author, speaker, consultant, clinician, and I'm thrilled to be here with my friend and colleague, Brendan, who does such amazing work. What a great way to kick off 2022. Yeah, I'm glad to have you back because it's been a little while. So yay! Yay! And we're just going to kind of talk about what the trends are in ADHD mental health land that we're both experiencing in 2022 as we get rolling into still more pandemic. Um, I would love to hear some of the stuff that's sort of jumping out to you in terms of things the parents should be aware of. Yes, um, I think that's a great place to start. But I'm actually going to turn it back on you because I'd like to know what you're seeing that is raising your eyebrows a bit. Yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll take it back. A lot of it on my end is anxiety. And I've been, I, this is like pre-COVID. I've always, for years now, I've been like, everything is anxiety. So now it's just more anxiety because there's a pandemic and there's trauma getting blended into that anxiety. And there's difficulty escaping that anxiety because I can't leave my house. I can't do the things that I used to do, right? Like some stuff might not even be available. Yes. And I'm seeing that play out at home for my clients, for even like the kids that I know through my kids, right? There's a lot of hiding. A lot, I hear a lot about kids just kind of, they're in their room and they're not coming out and they're not talking to mom and dad. So despite the fact that we're all cooped up in the same house, those connections are kind of getting severed because people are needing time to themselves, but not able to get it. That's playing a role in some of the trends that I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of struggles around communication and expectations with regard, especially to school. And like my kid is not doing the stuff that I expect them to do. Or when I talk to teachers, my students aren't getting things done that they used to get done. And oftentimes those are assignments that have been going on for years and years and decades. And they're not, the teachers are just not factoring in. Well, now we're living through a global pandemic and everyone has this background stress and anxiety of COVID, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get my mom sick? Am I going to get my dad sick? Am I going to get my dog sick? Is someone going to die? And so those assignments are harder now and they take more time than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I'm also seeing like this sort of, it's the same trend, but it seems to go one of two directions. Either people are going, I'm going to be nice to myself, right? Like this is really hard. This is a high stress environment. I'm going to sort of give myself a break and maybe give themselves a little bit too much of a break and not expect enough of themselves. Or the opposite side of that not so good response is I'm expecting more of myself almost. And I'm trying to just like power through and push through and I'm just going to be tough and do everything anyway, when that's also not realistic. I'm not hearing as many people who are kind of finding that middle ground of like, I'm going to take into a, into account that this is a global pandemic. It's a worldwide trauma event. I'm going to give myself a little bit of a break, but I'm still going to do the things that I need to get done. I might just not do them. I might do like a B instead of an A, like that kind of thing. And it's possible that I'm not hearing from those people because maybe those people aren't struggling and they don't want to work with me because they're doing okay. Like I recognize that that is probably playing a role in this, but those are some of the things that I'm seeing. Is, Is that related to what you've been seeing? Is it Anything that's glaringly obvious that I didn't mention? You and I both like facts and statistics. So I thought I'd throw up some, throw up. Oh my (laughs) God, everybody, I hope you're laughing. Maybe we do want to throw up, but I'm going to throw out 
some uh, statistics. Prior to COVID, the CDC found that approximately one in five children, and that would include teens, had a mental health diagnosis. And only about 20% of those kids received care from a mental health provider. Post-COVID, 71% of parents said the pandemic has taken a toll on their child's mental health. And 69% said that this was the worst thing to happen to their child. And I'm quoting something from the American Psychological Association. And a national survey of 3,300 high schoolers conducted in May of 2020, so that's almost two years ago, found that close to a third of the students felt unhappy and depressed more than usual. Uh, there are higher emergency room visits, mental health-related emergency room visits, particularly for kids between the ages of 12 and 17. And the pandemic has exacerbated existing disparities in mental health. So in states where there's, there are more mental health providers and it's accepted um, to, go, to get mental health services, those numbers are lower than in states where it's not. Um, so I think that's all really important. So what we're seeing right now are continued, like initially we saw elevated levels of stress, anxiety, and behavioral issues. And now those aren't quite the way they were when kids first went back to school, they've plateaued a little bit, but they're still above where they've been. And so this is very challenging for schools because what we're seeing in schools is that kids are saying, no, I don't feel like doing that. You're going to make me do that. They're much less willing to do things they don't like to do because they've spent a lot of time learning at home where they didn't have to do stuff and they're fed up. They feel out of control and frustrated. In fact, um, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychology declared about a year ago an emergency in child and adolescent mental health. So these are all things that I think are worth kind of putting in and in, in the background of our conversation so that uh, for your listeners, if your kids are having a harder time, that's normal. That's expected. Frankly, the kids who are just doing fine are the kids who I'm <laughs> where did you come from? <laughs> And, and also, I, I don't want to be a scaremonger here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scaremonger a little bit. And I apologize in advance. And I want to own that that's what's happening. Also, if your kid is doing fine, maybe ask different questions because maybe they're doing a really good job of hiding the fact that they're not doing fine. That's also a possibility. And, and certainly they might be doing fine, right? Like that is entirely possible. But I don't believe for a second that if 71% of kids are struggling, right? I, I don't buy that 29% of kids aren't affected by this pandemic. Everybody's affected by it. They're just maybe not in crisis land, right? It might not be that significant that mom and dad are going to put it down on a survey. That's right. They're affected, but it may not be significant enough. Right. Uh, we are also seeing, um, uh, this is from an NPR article that came out recently, higher levels of uh, arguing among students, fights among students, uh, violence against those in authority. Um, a school principal in Massachusetts was assaulted by a student and other uh, staff members have been assaulted. And of course there was a whole TikTok encouragement in the fall to like hit your teacher or do something like that. There was one like block up a toilet in the bathroom and then the next one was like hit a teacher. It was very frightening for 
teachers and more students are hurting themselves. There's been a rise in self-harm, suicidal thoughts and, 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 uh, and attempts. And so what we want to really understand now that you're all panicked who's listening is like a lot of this is the sort of the repercussion of, of being away from school for an entire year. Mm-hmm. The, the stress of returning to school has has been more than a lot of kids could handle. Um, and particularly if we're talking about kids who are neurodivergent, who already struggle with emotional control and impulse control and um, you know self-awareness. And also, and and thank you for mentioning the increase in arguments and the challenges that schools are facing around even assaults on teachers and the bathroom stuff from TikTok and all that. Because you're reminding me about a topic that I was chasing down in the beginning of the pandemic. I was trying to get a guest on to talk about this. And then I just lost track of it because other stuff kind of became more important, primarily homeschooling the boys. But now I got space again. So I will make this happen in the not too distant future audience. But a piece of this, I think, is moral injury, which is not something that gets talked about all that often. It comes out of the military, but that doesn't mean it doesn't apply in other areas. And during early COVID, there was a lot of talk about moral injury playing a role in hospital stuff. The idea behind moral injury is you're being asked to go against sort of your moral compass by situations and often by people who are in charge, often by like Mm. in the military, it's like your higher ranked officers. In the hospital, it's like the people who are in charge of you or just the situation and doctors and nurses and that stuff. For kids, the people who are in charge are mom, dad, the principal, the teacher, and those sorts of things. And where I look at the lens of moral injury for kids is I am being asked to go to school while at the same time, I'm hearing all over the place that it's not safe to leave my house because I might get sick. And I'm being asked to wear a mask and keep people safe and make sure no one is put at risk. But I'm also being told that it's okay for me to take my mask off and sit right next to somebody in the cafeteria, even though I'm supposed to be six feet away from everybody. When did that change? Right? So one way that that moral injury component might be playing out is, well, screw authority. Why should I respect their authority? They're supposed to be keeping me safe, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And that is a simplified view of the very complicated situation that schools are in. But if I'm 10, 11, 12, 16, eight, I'm going to have a simplified view of the very complicated things that schools are going through. If I'm 30 and not well-informed, I might have a simplified view of what's going on with schools. So that response to me makes sense, right? That rebellion piece makes sense. And in fact, one of the ways that this comes up regularly for me is in my parent groups, I talk about values and the role of values in the family and how we want to know what they are so we can communicate them with our kids. And also that our kids are going to have different values than we have and that we need to be able to navigate that and be okay with it. And one of my go-to examples is for me growing up, someone in authority told you to do something, you did it, you listened, they knew what they were talking about. That's why they were in authority. Like they were vetted already. And it took me a long time to learn that like, maybe they're not like, you don't just blindly listen to people in authority, but that's still in me, right? In my core, there's still that like, no, listen to people of authority. And I have to kind of talk my way out of that sometimes. My kids though, oh no. My kids know that to play the game, you should listen to the people in authority, but they don't automatically trust them. 
They don't automatically respect them. None of that. My kids are like, nah, they're an authority because they're power hungry. And I will only do what I am being told to do so I don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'll navigate that as necessary. So that's, it's different. It's very interesting. I think that's very interesting. And I, I do think that there is a kind of underlying rage and um, surface disrespect for adults because I think that kids feel like adults have not protected them and because they've lost so much. So that year when kids weren't in school, they lost social skills, a whole year of developing social skills. And that actually goes whether you're five or you're you know, 18 or even 25, but there's been an, a tremendous loss. And so that actually fuels anxiety about coming back to school and how to relate again to people. And of course, when you're a teenager and you have all of this posturing around identity and who am I and where do I belong, if you add in extra anxiety about social skills because I'm not used to being in in-person life, that's a huge adjustment, particularly if you're still learning the skills to function every day. And when we have kids who have ADHD or a learning disability or are level one on the autism spectrum, you know, these are kids for whom social engagements can already be challenging. And so to have a year where you actually didn't get to practice in-person socializing makes that a little bit more challenging. The other thing that kids has been hard for kids is school is harder than it was during COVID because no matter how much schools adapted, a lot of them made things a little bit easier. You know, they made it easier, both for the, because the teachers couldn't monitor it or handle it and the students weren't able to do the work. Now you're back in person in school, academics are back to where they were before the the COVID uh, pause. And and kids are struggling a little bit because they have to relearn skills like time management, uh, organization, planning and prioritizing. So I think in addition to that sort of moral, the moral, the failure of, of, of the moral structure to help kids feel safe and protected, there are also these real life issues like, oh, every day I have, I go to the cafeteria and I have lunch means I'm going to take my mask off. Am I safe? Am I not safe? You know, and and now that I don't have my mask on, like, oh, I have to read people's faces. That's challenging. And also some kids stayed connected to each other during COVID and some kids didn't. So you've got kids that are talking to each other and have this depth of knowledge about each other's lives. And then you've got other kids who were not as connected and are trying to fit back into those social circles that they maybe once were firmly cemented in and now they're feeling distance from, or maybe weren't at all cemented in anything. Maybe that's part of the challenges of their neurodiversity. And now they feel even further out of the loop because they feel like they've maybe lost a year of being connected to their peers. And they only feel that way because some kids are still connected and they're like, what do I do with that? And then we have trauma, right? You know, real trauma, which is, you know, families who experienced issues with food, issues with housing, issues with work and death, you know, over 175,000 kids in this country lost a parent or a caregiver, according to the CDC. And kids of color were disproportionately affected by those losses because of longstanding inequities 
healthcare and mental health care in their communities. So, you know, the trauma piece is very strong, and especially, you know, when you're, you've sort of, you've lived through the death of somebody that could have been harrowing, you couldn't have seen them, you maybe weren't able to have a funeral, and then you have to go to school and see people and manage that stress. It's a lot for a lot of kids. Um, so I think what we, what would we have to do, you and me and all, all the other caregivers who are, you know, coaches and teachers and mental health uh, providers is we have to assist you parents who are still listening. If you haven't been totally depressed and turned it off in, in steps that you can take toward managing your anxiety and helping your kids manage their own. So what do you got? So the first thing that I got is we want to identify um, that there are different types of anxiety. There are different types of anxiety. And what are those types of anxiety? So the different types of anxiety would be separation anxiety, social anxiety, would be uh, specific phobia, I'm afraid of spiders or thunderstorms, stranger anxiety, which we see in babies, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is a form of anxiety, but it's its own category. So the first thing that we want to think about is, you know, we want to define, well, what is anxiety? So anxiety is, disorders are problems related to fears uh, and worries, and they differ based on the focus of a person's worry. And anxiety is all about safety and security. It wants to make uncomfortable feelings and uncertainty go away immediately. So anxiety, you, you know, you don't inherit anxiety the way, you know, you can inherit ADHD in terms of like 50, 50, 45 to 55% of kids with ADHD have a parent with ADHD, but uh, anxiety tends to be, there's a genetic component to it. So it often runs in families and you, you know, if you were, if you have this genetic component and, you know, there's a, you have this predisposition to it. So anxiety looks like scanning for threats, catastrophizing, what if thoughts and worries, unreliable emotional messages, and interpreting predictions as facts. I want to jump on a couple of those things real quick and, ex- and expand mm, a little bit. Sure. First, I want to mention that two major anxiety pieces for parents that might be rolling into kids is money, especially right now where finances mm-hmm. are maybe all yep. over the place and maybe struggling. And also, and this goes for kids and adults with ADHD is folks with ADHD are much more sensitive to rejection. And that's going to bring about Mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety too. And those things can interweave, right? Like mom can be really stressed about money. Mm -hmm. The kid comes up and asks if they can get a hot dog at the hot dog stand. And mom's like, no, we have food at home. And now the kid is feeling rejected and they're not understanding why they can't just get this $3 hot dog. And, and we're off to the races right now we're arguing or something. Um, the other piece I want to I want to expand on is that word immediate. That anxiety wants to be safe immediately because it's important to remember that anxiety doesn't really have a long-term plan. Anxiety wants to like <laughs> fix it now <laughs> and doesn't care about what it's going to look like later unless it knows that later it's going to be a lot worse. But if anxiety is pressured enough, if it's turned up high enough, it's fight we're in fight flight and freeze land. And now I will feel safer if I just punch my teacher in the face and run away. And I'm not thinking all the way through to, oh, wait, that'll get me suspended and everything will be that much worse and all this kind of stuff. Anxiety doesn't always think that far ahead. 
which can explain why kids make seemingly bad choices. Actually, anxiety does have a long-term plan because its long-term plan is to keep you safe. That's what it, right. that's, that's the ostensible plan. I'm going to keep you safe. So if you stay in your room with the door closed and you never leave, I anxiety am doing my job. But the fact is that's just a myth. It's, it's it, because we need anxiety, we're wired for it. Actually, anxiety has helped us live through the centuries. You know, anxiety is something that tells us when we're not safe, but it, it also uh, is something that can motivate us to do things you know, uh, the, the positive side of, of anxiety, you know, there's productive worry and there's poisonous worry. You know, poisonous worry is about things you can't control. Will this plane crash? Will I get COVID? Will uh, there be a thunderstorm and lightning will hit my house? Who knows, you know, but we'll, we'll think about that over and over again. And then that will keep us in our room. Then there's the productive side of worry, which is like, hmm, I have to get this done. I'm worried I'm not going to get it done. So I'm going to motivate myself to do it. So we want to rem- we want to remember that if your job if your goal as a parent is to reduce is to eliminate anxiety you're going to fail you're going to fail every time because that's not that's not an actionable plan your goal is to teach your kids how to put their hand on the dial of the noise of their anxiety so they can control the volume so when it's loud they know how to self-soothe and make it softer. Um, When it's loud, if there's a real threat, they can pay attention to it. So we have to distinguish between the signal of anxiety, whoa, I'm at the curb and that car is coming really fast, I'm not gonna cross the street, versus the noise of anxiety, that little teeny weeny spider that's two rooms away from me is somehow gonna make it over and crawl onto my arm. Yeah, I, I should have said anxiety doesn't have a long-term plan for growth, right? Like anxiety is more than willing to just let you be anxious forever and never do anything. Forever. All yeah. the time. Like that, it that that's all that it wants. But it's not gonna think like five steps ahead to how we can get out of our room and do stuff. It it just doesn't it if it's right. and especially when it spikes. And when it spikes really hard and we hit that fight, flight, and freeze land then it really isn't thinking much further ahead than like a minute or two. Then it's like, oh, we're stuck here. Let's deal with it. But I'm with you that anxiety is also healthy. It's what makes us do stuff. Right. I mean, worriers are excellent planners and great. They have great future focused thinking. I know this because worry is like anxiety is one of my best friends. Like it's been around my whole life. You know, I think now at my age, which I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah, I feel more, uh, more able to notice it. There are a few things that you can do to help reduce anxiety. First of all, understand the difference between nervousness, worry, and anxiety. Nervousness is uncertainty uh, with a novel task or situation. It usually diminishes when you've had an experience or learned a skill. So for example, I'm nervous about going to school um, after vacation because I haven't really seen anybody or talked to them. Uh, I'm I'm nervous about that. Of course you are. And, you know, how can we strategize for that? Worry is when you expect a negative outcome. It's how you think about things. And worriers turn what ifs into believable situations. And then anxiety is a condition of over-responding physiologically and emotionally to a fear or worry. 
So anxiety distorts thinking and exaggerates emotions. What can we do with that? Is what we want to do, and I think what most parents do, which is where they get in trouble, is they try to solve each anxiety as it comes up. You know, I'm going to manage your anxiety about going back to school. We've got that settled. And then, um, oh, it's going to come up in a different way three weeks later. You know, it doesn't work like that. We have to look at the pattern of anxiety. And how is anxiety functioning? What is the role of anxiety? And how, what, is it, what is its goal? Because in order to overcome anxiety, you have to want to do something more than listen to the anxiety. And that's hard. Um, because the anxiety is very powerful. So for young kids, as parents, we want to put our arms around them, give a name to that worry monster, get out our invisible swords, and basically say, come on, anxiety, we've got you. This is what we're going to say to you today, you know, to basically come up with phrases to say to that negative talk in your brain that is run by the anxiety to look at how it functions. When does it appear? What is it, what is it trying to keep you from? What would you like to be able to do if anxiety wasn't present? How can we build the skills to make that happen? One of the approaches I take as a parent that I also encourage my coaching clients to do is you've got to teach your kids how to do hard things. Mm -hmm. I intentionally expose my kids to stuff that is hard. We're in Boy Scouts because that's going to get us into places that are uncomfortable. We're in martial arts, because that's going to be uncomfortable, although not as much with COVID because we don't spar. And then I'm also looking at, and I, this is a, a listeners, please bother me in a month to make sure that I've done this because um, I've been sitting on it a little too long. I've been ADHDing this one a little bit because it's hard to get accomplished. We've got a parkour kind of program out by us that I just have to sign my kids up for. But every time I call them, they don't answer. And I'm not sure what level to sign them up for. And that's my like, where I'm stuck. But that's a thing that my kids like to do. They, Nate especially, will like climb anything and has no fear. But there's this technical piece of parkour where you have to know how to jump from one thing to another and be precise and be careful and all that stuff that he needs practice with. The practice side of it is what my kids also need to learn how to do that's hard because their dad sucks at practice. I'm not the best role model in that area. I need help in that area to get them practicing things. Um, and so I encourage parents in general, find stuff that's going to make your kids a little bit uncomfortable and, and let them know what you're doing and let them know that you're, that's the point. If you have them playing a sport and they think it's just for fun, but you're like, well, they're learning valuable lessons like teamwork and how to do things that are hard and how to get up after they get knocked down and these kinds of things. Tell them about, those secret lessons that you're hoping they're going to learn because that's part of how you help them learn them. If they're only in that sport for fun, they're not going to notice that they're learning all these other lessons and might not be picking up on them as effectively as they otherwise could. I don't want to be shamelessly self-promoting, but I'm going to be shamelessly self-promoting on my website and on my YouTube channel. I have a lot of information about how to deal with anxiety. I also have it in my book. And one of the things that you want to look at is identifying the cycle of anxiety. What are the triggers that set off anxiety? What happens in your body that lets you know you're feeling anxious? Kids can do this too. Do they sweaty palms, feeling hot, their stomach hurts a little bit. How can you respond to those signals as a red flag that anxiety is now gathering up momentum instead of 
just waiting until the you know anxiety is fully in control. We want to we want to basically create space between the trigger and the negative thought. And yeah. usually what happens is people try to create space between the actual anxiety event and and the behavior and that's too late. Right? We have to deal, we have to you have to you basically you have to pre-plan, you have to pre-game to follow up with your shameless self-promoting. I will too. Because half the point of my parent groups is to reduce the overall anxiety in the home. Because like you said, if we already spiked, it's too late, right? Like we want to avoid those spikes. We want to reduce the anxiety at home so that mom and dad are less likely to spike. The kids are less likely to spike. When you mentioned anxiety patterns, one of the things I want to call attention to is sometimes the kid's anxiety spike doesn't start with the kid. It starts with a sibling or with mom or dad or at school, like some other person in their life is experiencing anxiety and they're picking up on it because Mm -hmm. when it comes to anxiety, like everybody in the house is going to rise to the level of the person who is most anxious in the home, unless someone intentionally anchors themselves and like brings their anxiety down so that everyone else can use them as a balancing point. And then we can bring the anxiety lower sometimes kicking and screaming that matters. Yeah. I think I, I have to say, I think that's definitely true. And you know, what I want to offer your listeners before we leave are some, some tools. So one is you want to change your relationship to anxiety. You can't eliminate the anxiety, but you want to change your relationship to it by treating it like a puzzle. Expect to worry, expect that worry shows up. Worry is going to show up and say, blah, 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 and you can't handle it. What are you going to say or do in response to that? Because what anxiety is, is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of the resources to deal with it. That's why the antidote to anxiety is resilience, is having a growth mindset saying, I'm willing to try, see what happens. If it doesn't work, I'm going to regroup and try something else or shift or tweak that a bit and then try it again. So that is the first thing. The second thing is collaboration. You want to um, work together with your kids to reduce the power and influence of their worry by brainstorming things they can say to it when it rears its ugly head. You will not always be around as a parent to reassure your kids, right? I love that you take your kids, Brendan, to parkour and it's not comfortable for you and it's not comfortable for them because being uncomfortable basically helps build our disappointment muscle. And we're, we're born with super flabby ones and we, it, it, it strengthens through life experience where we're disappointed, where we tolerate that something didn't work out. And usually that's what anxiety is trying to prevent. Our anxiety as parents and your own anxiety for kids as a human being. I mean, my kids are in their 20s and I am really working super hard to try to let them make their own mistakes. You know, my job is no longer to say, you know, to offer them direction because they don't want to hear it. And a lot of times kids with ADHD don't want to hear it either, younger kids, because they're like, I want to figure it out my own way. And it's so hard as parents to just sit on your hands. But sometimes we have to. 
the phrase that I use for that is I call it practicing independence when they're younger. One of the reasons why I like that phrase is it helps you like feel more comfortable doing it because that word practicing matters, right? It's not like, oh, they're being independent. Like, no, they're not being independent. They're going to screw this up and some adult is going to have to step in and adjust something or correct something. And that's okay. That's what we want. We want them to practice. It's safe for them to make a mistake right now. That's a growth mindset. That's right. a growth mindset. Yeah. You're, they're supposed to practice when you are home with your parents, whether you're, you know, six, 16. Some people are still practicing, you know, post-college living mm-hmm. at home right now. There, um, that's a different situation, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You know, we want to help our kids get focused on what they do want when they're feeling anxious instead of what they don't want. Right. Another useful piece of this practicing independence term is uh, avoiding the judgment of other parents. When my guys were little, like six, seven, I would let them walk pretty far away from me and like cross the street and all kinds of stuff, depending on where we were. And sometimes I'd be with other parents and they'd say to me, like, you're going to let them get that far away. You're going to let them cross the street. And I would just look at them and say, yeah, they're practicing independence. It's a way to explain, like, it's not that I'm a negligent parent. I know what's going on. I'm doing this on purpose. I'm granting them this freedom on purpose because when I grant them this freedom, they get to feel it and they get to make some mistakes or not make some mistakes. And I get to learn that I can trust them. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. Learning that you can trust your kids is incredibly beneficial to your relationship with them because it, then they know that you trust them and that helps them feel safer and more secure in the relationship, especially mm-hmm. as we get older and they start to want more independence mm-hmm. naturally, that desire for more independence becomes an easier thing to accomplish when you've been sort of granting it in controlled doses throughout their lives. You know, I think that's really important. And the other thing that I was thinking is that, you know, like, when you have um, that the, the safe container of your parents, like that's part that, you know, that, that's really, if you think about it, when your kids are little, like, and you're at the playground and they, they wander toward the slide and then they turn around and they look at you to see if you're there and you're, you're smiling and you're nodding and then they keep wandering. That kind of process happens throughout maturation, right? And that's what they, you need, you know, they need you sort of standing there, um, loving them, being steady. And that's challenging for all parents. It's particularly challenging for parents who have ADHD and who are raising kids who have ADHD. I think the best thing that we can do as parents is recall a time when our kids were afraid of something and they met the challenge successfully. Identify the stages that helped them do that or the actions that they took and write these down. And then make connections between that and whatever anxious situation they're facing in the future. Because anxiety is very good at erasing memories of success and and courage. And we have to hold that for our kids. And I think that's really important. Not to say, oh, you can do this. You've got it. That's dismissive. It's not actually reassuring. Or... I, you know, you've been here, you'll do it. You'll, you know, you'll be here again and uh, you can handle it. Also not specific, but if you can say, 
Do you remember when you were nervous about starting sixth grade at the middle school? You were so nervous. And the first day, you know, we figured out who you could connect with and how you could get there. And the day went okay. Your kid will be like, I think so. And then, okay, so now you're starting high school and it's the same kind of nervousness, of course. So who, how can we repeat that success? Or um, you're going to camp or whatever it is that you draw similarities. Um, so that because your kid, your kids can't do that for themselves. And that's an important way in which we as parents meet our kids where they are. And we hold out the hope and possibility for where they're going to be able to go. And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? When our kids are anxious, it's very provocative for us, particularly if you run on the anxious side like I do. And I look back on my parenting and I know that I made a lot of decisions or yelled out of my own fear, out of my own fear. Um, so I think that takes me back to my five C's, self-control, you know, be aware of what's happening for you and manage that first, you know, offer compassion to the, what's going on for your child, but also for you have some self-compassion collaborate with them around, you know, tackling that anxiety monster, stay consistent, not perfect, but your aim is to stay steady, to look at the pattern of the anxiety and to come back to it over and over and notice how your child is efforting, trying to, to meet that challenge or overcome that challenge, whether they succeed or not, it's the effort that matters. And then celebrate, notice, validate when they actually are taking a risk. Yes, you're afraid to go to school because you may not know anyone in your class. That makes sense. You're, we're going anyway. You're noticing, you're validating, and you're moving in, in a new direction. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.